must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. You know, of course, you've touched on, you know, a lot of things throughout this discussion already, not even just in that study, in your study you kind of have referenced, but throughout the episode in general about kind of what we know overall about student and CI assessment, but let's touch base on a little bit more about some of the things that we maybe don't know um, from the evidence when it comes to, you know, student and CI assessment, and maybe what are some things that we need to continue to look at to help frame our discussions or maybe help answer these questions better? Yeah, yeah. So um, I'll frame that in two ways. Um, firstly, what, what do, don't we know that, that perhaps um, this study highlights um, a little more so than before? And, and then I'd also like to just see what don't we know that maybe other professions might have some insights on? Uh, so, so as far as the um, I think what I've learned or what's been highlighted um, by my assessment of the PTSE is, is that both for student performance and now for clinical instructor performance, we don't know how performance is changing throughout a clinical. Okay, for students, we don't know what happens other than at midpoint and final. That's typically when we're formally assessing our students. And for clinical instructors, um, even though we're, we may be assessing at midpoint and final, we really don't have the confidence that we have a tool that's telling us what we hope or what it intends to tell us. Um, so again, that's that's certainly um, troubling. We don't know about students' um, ability to honestly, willingly, and accurately assess clinical instructor performance. And there's there's evidence out there. Um, Howman at Al uh, group out at Ohio University, you know, they've looked at um, how do students rate their clinical instructors using the PTSE when they're in the clinic? And then when they come back to school, say, okay, now fill it out again. And if you really felt that they didn't perform as at the same level you rated them, do that. And, and 20% of the students actually rated their, stu- their CIs lower now that they knew that they weren't going to be sharing it with their clinical instructor. So, so maybe some type of fear factor. And, I, and I've heard that from our own students too, that they're just fearful that if, if I criticize my clinical instructor, then my clinical instructor may retaliate. I'll never get a job at that institution. I might not graduate, you know, those, you know et cetera. You know, the, the fear, um, fear of the unknown. Um, Sean, do you also think part of it may also be due to um, maybe our differences in our mental ability for memory? Because, you know, as we know, it, I think it's sometimes ironic how our memory of something gets better with time. 
after an event. So I'm not saying that's the full scope, but I just wonder yeah, how yeah. much that potentially in play sometimes, you know? Yeah, that, that's a great question. And, and that would be, I think, a, a fascinating one to try to figure out how do you even measure that, you know? Yeah, I have um, no idea. <laughs> but I think, you know, as we try to, again, tweak this tool, uh, the PTSE, or come up with a completely new tool, I think one of the challenges, how do you account for factors such as that and factors such as students' fear of um, critiquing their instructor? Um, so, so that's, uh, I think, some of the things I've, that, that I think come from the results of the PTSE. It, you know, as I look at um, other professions and maybe some things that we've learned from them, um, you know, the, the nursing and medical professions, um, hands down, they speak most about um, education of, of their profession, upcoming professionals, both in, in the clinic. You know, this, there's, there's much more, uh, much greater volume of writing. So they actually have valid and reliable tools for student assessment. They have valid and reliable tools for clinical instructor assessment. Um, so I think part of what we can do is, is look at their tools and, and maybe it's not just a adopt their tool because there are differences across professions, um, but maybe it can help inform us. Um, the, there's also differences between self-assessment and um, other assessment. So, you know, we, we've had a number of tools that, um, again, across professions, but also within the profession that are self-assessment tools. So we have the APTA guidelines for self-assessments, and they give a lot of neat this skill, that skill, you know, check it off. Um, and then, um, you know, interestingly, we've had a number of studies trying to, within our profession, trying to see, is there a difference in someone who's been trained with the um, APTA Credential Clinical Instructor Program? You know, are they, are they better clinical instructors? And um, we've been unable to demonstrate by the tools that are available that they are. Um, so um, two different groups, um, Bridges out of Emory, um, she, she looked at the objectives of the credential clinical instructor program and just for every objective she just said okay we're going to assess that and develop the tool that assesses and then um, warmly uh, and her group refined that tool um, and, and so that tool is called the clinical teaching effectiveness questionnaire but it's a self-assessment tool it's you know uh, she's um, provided literature it's, it's now been published that it's a um, that, that suggests reliability and validity. Um, however, the, the concern with self-assessment tools, while they are very useful, um, is that we tend to overestimate ourselves when we, when we rate ourselves. There's plenty of evidence in the literature for that. So, um, so that really leaves us in our profession, again, with what don't we know? Um, we don't we just don't have, well, I guess we do know, we don't have a tool that can assess um, clinical instructor performance um, that we can count on, essentially. So unfortunately, there's just no perfect tool, right, Sean? Yeah, yeah, no, that's, that's true. Um, so many of the tools out there, I, I would say they're, they're developed for, with a very good mindset and offer very good features. Um, but I think on the student side, you know, even with the six tools that I mentioned for assessing student performance, um, 
you know, I think it's time to say, okay, let's look at all of those. What, what do we like best about each of these tools? And can we combine the best of the best to come up with a tool that, and, and is that tool actually better? <laughs> you know, can we be satisfied with that? And does it, you know, can it, can we create a tool that is actually valid and reliable taking that approach? I'm sensing a future study from your group on this <laughs> there in the future. There are plenty of, yeah, you know, no, really. I mean, that's, uh, and again, thanks, thanks to you for this, you know, if you ever wonder your contribution to the profession, um, you know, you made me sit down and make that comparison in detail so I could at least talk about it in general. And, and it really sets the stage for, a, um, a systematic review of, of the tools that are out there. And, and so, so we'll put it on the list. <laughs> I love it. Hey, it's a good research question. And I think it's yeah. exploring and figuring out yes or no. You know, right. I, I think it's a solid rationale. And I'm, you know, I'm very happy that that made that think of that process for you. So I'm excited to see kind of how that'll go. But, you know, one thing that I've, you know, I've seen a lot of Sean, and I've taken the um, CCIP level one right. clinical instructor. And one thing that a lot of programs will do, of course, is they will use uh, brief weekly feedback forms. Because part yeah. of the reason why when I have talked to a few DCEs is one of the reasons is, you know, people, those in academia don't necessarily want to just hear uh, midterm and final. They kind of want to have some evidence over time, right. kind of going on in some way, shape, or form to just kind of get a little snapshot, excuse me, kind of all the way. So what can you tell us about kind of implementation and results maybe when it comes to um, using these weekly fed feedback forms in clinical education? Yeah, you know, so, so there's not been a whole lot published. Um, the tools that I've seen are... Um, are fairly general and op they offer open-ended questions, which, which is great because they're, they're just saying, you know what, we're gonna use this weekly feedback form because I want you student and UCI to get together at least once a week, pause and just say, how's it going? So a lot of the tools that I've seen are very open-ended questions as opposed to having a rating scale um, that you could track progress with numbers as well as um, with comments from week to week. So um, I mentioned early on in this um, discussion that um, when I was at uh, Miami Valley Hospital as their um, site coordinator of clinical education, we developed a weekly tool that um, started to rate different aspects of, of student performance. And um, so we rated uh, four, just four, we said, okay, let's, we don't wanna repeat the CPI, it's too long. What are maybe four general categories that could capture most of that the flavor of what's in the CPI? And so we said evaluation, treatment, um, communication, and professionalism. And, and so that's what was being rated. We saw our um, number of cases. Uh, so maybe we had about 30 students a year in physical therapy. And we went from seven or eight um, students who were having significant problems on their clinicals that we weren't discovering until later in the clinical um, down to uh, one to two per year um, after we implemented this tool. So, and, we, and, and so I don't think the problems necessarily disappeared. I think they were just identified week two, week three, instead of waiting till midterm to identify and then having two weeks to see if it got better. And then lo and behold, the clinical's over. So, so that was our first study, and, and that was um, accepted 
uh, I think it was CSM 2005, in San Diego. Truth be told, though, I didn't present there. <laughs> um, I ended up not being able to make that happen. But, but more recently presented it um, at um, ELC, I think it was in 2015, the Education Leadership Conference. Um, so that was one piece. Um, when I came to UD, we started to look at that tool and develop it further. And we, we said to ourselves, you know, people really don't like having to do the CPI at midterm and final. And so we said, what if we just did use the weekly feedback form? Um, could it replace the midterm assessment at least? And, and so we did a study where we compared um, students who used the midterm uh, CPI and not the weekly feedback form. That was one group. Students who used only the midterm weekly feedback form, or not the, only the weekly feedback form and not the midterm CPI. Then we had a third group that used both. And what we found was when you look at their final CPI scores, uh, they were the same, regardless of the approach. There were maybe one or two items where the using the combination was just a little better, um, but not worth the effort you had to do as a student and clinician to be filling out both. So what we do now is we, on our shorter clinicals, um, we do not use a midterm CPI because um, we feel we have the evidence that can um, back up and get the same outcomes. So that, and again, I presented that um, at ELC also, I, I forget which year. So those were, were two. And then more recently, um, actually while I was presenting at um, ELC, maybe 2015, and I think it was in Phoenix, um, someone came up to me and said, you know what else we do with our weekly? She says, we actually assess the clinical instructor also. I said, you're kidding. That is awesome. <laughs> you mind if I do that with mine? She's like, no, go ahead. That's, that's wonderful. So, so we added clinical instructor performance assessment. And so now we have a tool that is um, electronic. It's actually developed as an app, although it hasn't been published yet as an app. Um, but it's a web-based tool where students will assess um, supervision and feedback um, for their clinical instructors. Clinical instructors will self-assess. So just like the CPI, each of you do it separately, then you get together and you compare. And as well, the students and CIs measure student performance too, or rate student performance. And we're doing about every other week now on clinicals. And our data from 2018, I believe, um, we, we ran validity assessment on it. And, and we have, I, I would say, um, moderate um, strength validity. You know, not, not, not strong validity, but, but we've got validity that shows that, um, you know, one, one form of construct validity is that you show progress. So from early on in a clinical to later in a clinical, if the tool's measuring progress, it should really measure when there is a difference. And, and, and that we're seeing. And, and how do we know there's really a difference? We, we aligned with our student performance items. Um, we had concurrent validity with the CPI performance items that were similar. And again, we found some evidence um, with that, depending on which clinical we were using. So um, we're really, uh, you know, aside from the validity assessments that are ongoing and the reliability studies that are ongoing with this tool, um, what I see as far as the depth of um, introspection, especially by our clinical instructors, is amazing. And we're doing some qualitative assessment of this also. Um, 
but, the, but they are really digging deep and saying, how can I be a better instructor? And you can see in the next week, both from the student and the CI, hey, I implemented this strategy. And, and student is saying, my CI implemented strategy A, and it's going better. Um, so we're, we're seeing some neat things with that. Um, and so that's, uh, we have a lot of excitement about that particular tool. Um, the other thing that it does, and this is very intentional, is, is that we want our students not to be fearful of critiquing their supervisors. Because in healthcare, as, as you well know, you know, we, whether it's, we, I have two PT peers that are consulting with me about a patient, or I'm having a discussion with a physician and a nurse um, about what's the best route of care for this patient, and I believe we should go one way, but my supervisor, who's the clinic manager, who's, or who's the team manager, the physician on inpatient rehab, you know, they think we should go a different way. Do I feel comfortable speaking up? You know, and I should because it's for my patient. So we're trying to develop those habits early on. And as you, if you're forced every week or every other week to assess your clinical instructor and your clinical instructor knows it's going to happen and your clinical instructor is self-assessing and you're having those discussions with regularity, I think it somewhat demystifies this whole concept of assessing a supervisor. And, and, and we're seeing very fruitful um, discussions and, and pleased with the results. Now, the challenge to us now is to be able to really quantify those or detail those quantitatively and, and qualitatively um, and share that information. Well, I think it's just so fascinating, Sean, you giving that perspective on that. And I'm kind of kind of ask you here to kind of rope us in together kind of to a final uh, recommendation what you, in terms of what we, what we should do uh, regarding student and CI assessment, because a lot of this you've kind of said spread throughout the episode already. Yeah. Uh, but how, what, would you, what would you say if we kind of bring it home? What do you think would be the beneficial steps that need to be done kind of on a macro and a micro level um, to contribute to improving student and CI assessment when it comes to clinical education? Right, right, right. So, so at the macro level, I think um, probably one of the biggest lessons I learned from my dissertation study on the PTSE um, which I failed to mention, was, was the idea of a national clinical education database. I had at my fingertips thousands and thousands of completed PTSEs um, that allowed me to you know, produce a, a, a good study, or a study that someone doesn't look at and say, yeah, but that's just two or three schools and it's in your region. I was like, no, I had schools from all across the nation, public, private, um, you know, et cetera. So, so the strength of having a cl national clinical education database is, is immensely powerful. Um, and then along with that, um, a database isn't terribly helpful if you don't have standardized tools. So, so it doesn't mean that every um, PT school has to use the same tool, but if we could have two or three tools that are demonstrated reliable and valid, um, both for clinical instructor assessment and for student performance, um, then again, we have this um, wonderful um, strength to be able to not just measure their performance, but measure all the interventions that we come up with. Um, to improve education. So, so right now that you're hearing a lot of talk, we're going to be shifting to a competency-based education. Well, okay, show me on at least a small scale that that produces better outcomes. Maybe it does, maybe it doesn't, but what tools do we have available that can measure that? 
And I think there should be measures of student performance that can tell us that, measures of CI performance, but maybe we don't have the best tools right now, even tools that are known to be valid and reliable because they were created 20 years ago. So I think in addition to a clinical education database, having you know, two or three um, standardized tools available to everyone in the profession to use, I think if, if we could do those two things, um, that would be, I think, a marvelous foundation for really having um, agility in the future to say, let's go this direction. Okay, let's pilot this. And we've got our outcome measures. Great. It, everything looks good. Let's move this large scale. Well, I appreciate that. And I think uh, one thing I'll admit is once we get your uh, magic tool, after you integrate them all together, that'll certainly be it. Right. We have to get right. more of that. Um, but Sean, I appreciate that. And I'm going to kind of switch yeah. gears a little bit more and take a, sure. ask a few questions on just you know, on a broad scale about clinical education, because I think, like I said in the beginning, just seeing how many different roles and perspectives you've personally gone through and kind of your path that led you to ultimately being a DCE where you are now, right. you know, I mean, I got to ask, because one thing I'm going to start with the DCE question first before we kind of dive into clinicals, but um, from your perspective as a DCE, one thing that, you know, I'll commonly hear at least more recently or more frequently than um, they want to used to, and I'll admit I'm only four years out. So please, when right, people are saying right. a while, like it's not very yeah. long. I'm very new to this. Sure. Please keep that in mind. But in the limited time that I have been a clinician, um, I have noticed, at least anecdotally, um, that there's more frequency of clinics and clinicians wishing not to really take students um, sure. for a wide variety of reasons I've heard. But you know, I'd be curious from your perspective as a DCE. What are the big things you hear as to why clinics and clinicians don't want to take students and be involved in clinical education like they perhaps used to? Yeah, yeah. So um, first I'll say, um, you know, for you at four years, for someone at one year, uh, that fresh set of eyes is so valuable for the rest of us who may have gotten used to the way it is. And, and the things that we were maybe really concerned about 15 years ago but felt we just can't do anything about. It's so helpful to hear someone say, that is still a problem and it is not acceptable and we got to do something about it. So, so thank you. I, I really appreciate that. Um, you know, I, I would say that um, probably the number one concern I hear is productivity. Um, you know, the, the frontline PTs are being told by either their managers or their boss's boss's boss, you know, bottom line, we have to produce. Um, and interestingly, the, the evidence, uh, all the studies that have been done demonstrate an actual an improvement in productivity. There's, a, there's an initial dip when you're orienting a student and they're getting used to your facility. But once they're up and running, um, you know, they're, they are, you are not losing productivity. And, and, and oftentimes you're gaining productivity. But there's that myth out there still. Um, and so part of the, the challenge is how do you overcome that, that myth that's out there? Um, the second part, though, is I, I, think, I think the, the assessment burden. I have to do so much documentation already as a PT, and that documentation is growing and growing and growing. How do I um, decrease my documentation? And, and boy, if I take a student, I have to fill out the CPI both at midterm and final. You know, that's, that is not appealing. Um, and, and, you know, most CIs or most now PTs have used the CPI as students, or a large portion of them have. 
Um, additionally, you know, part of the reason, you know, I think if you'll see in the medical profession, you'll see an attending physician going around with five, six residents or, or a resident going around with seven or eight medical students and, and teaching in that manner. Well, PTs don't want to do more than a one-to-one -one approach, um, one, one student per clinical instructor, uh, because then that means I have to fill out the CPI twice. And, uh, and again, I think, so, so I think those are the two biggest burdens that I'm hearing. What do you think about, because I know in some of the clinic owners and place people that I've talked with, I know one other thing that has come up is the fear of having a very challenging student who could potentially um, cause potential problems to the clinic and ultimately to you know their business at the bottom line of referral sources. I know that's been one that I've heard um, a few times, because I know some clinics will certainly, if they've had a good relationship with the school, you know, and they get good quality students, right, not right. so much of an issue, but it's when um, there's not that connection there and they are kind of getting maybe a student who has maybe a few more struggles or has some different qualities yeah. that maybe oh, yeah. do. Yeah, absolutely. And, and, you know, I think this is a, um, a good case, a good example where um, the state of the few um, that do have problems on clinicals um, just overwhelm the exceedingly large number of, of students who have great clinicals. Um, so, but if you yourself have had a bad clinical experience as a student, or you've had one as an instructor, it's rough. And it's not just rough on you two, it's rough on, on the department. So, so that's, that's a, I think, a very legitimate concern. But I, again, I think it comes back to um, education in the sense of um, understanding that that occurs with far less frequency than people probably recognize. Um, but also education from the schools um, to the sites to saying, here's, here's how we help you when that occurs. You know, we're, we're going to spend a little more time together, but when I have a student who's struggling, whether it's a true student performance issue or whether it's a clinical instructor performance issue or whether it's these two just don't like each other, <laughs> they have different styles, um, you know, we can successfully manage those to get the student across the finish line, not just Whew, they made it across the finish line, but having a very good clinical experience still, a good learning experience. And likewise, having the CI felt they've had a good teaching experience, even though it was a tougher student situation to manage. But they, they're only going to feel that at the end if the schools are very outwardly supporting that process, and which again, I think goes back to how are you assessing and recognizing those problems early on and, and getting the school involved very early so that we can address that? No, I think that's a really, really good point, Sean. And, you know, apart from, you know, before we ask you kind of our last finale question that we asked. Sure. Um, on a broad level, you've touched on a lot of stuff in your previous couple answers ago when it comes to um, some things that we need to do to improve, um, you know, student and CI assessment. But I'm going to kind of just take the lens out and go even further back and get a broader view of just clinical education in general. Um, so I'm going to ask you to step outside the student, the student CI assessment bubble for a second. Sure, Kind of think sure. of this broad scale. And, you know, given your experience in all these realms, what do you see 
is are the biggest things that we can improve on or that we should consider on a grand scale to improve clinical education on the whole? Maybe apart from the avenues we've been talking about on this yeah. episode. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, I think this this goes back to how do or we not going back, not meaning we've addressed it yet, but this reminds me of more curricularly how are we training our students? How much time are we spending in the classroom versus the clinic? And I, and I think we need to stop thinking of time, uh, of clinical time as meaning time in an actual physical therapy clinic. You know, um, when we have our um, general medicine or acute care skills courses, you know, why are we sitting in the classroom um, teaching people how to transfer, how to take blood pressures and, and walk with one another safely with a walker. Why aren't we in, um, you know, a local adult daycare center or um, a nursing or, or an assisted living facility or a senior living facility, um, you know, having a classroom right in there and having people other than your typically very healthy and fit PT classmates serving as your your models to gain experience on and and as you gain the skills of actually how do i put the cuff on how do i take this blood pressure you're also you're holding on to another person's hand that is is in a provider patient relationship now and so you get practice at having that how do i enter that space and that discussion um so so i would say you know getting us out of the traditional classroom mindset but not burdening our clinics by saying we want more hands-on experience so we're better prepared for clinicals um, because I, I my my take on into integrated clinical experiences that are part-time is that that puts burden on our clinical sites and i'm just not sure if if we're getting the bang for our buck are our outcomes that much better um, i think i think the question has not been answered um, so that, that would probably be my, my biggest um, pie in the sky. That would be fun just to, you know, let's get out in daycare centers. Let's get child care centers and um, let's learn more hands-on in that way um, rather than spending so much time sitting in a classroom and practicing on classmates. Yeah, and if I may, Sean, one thing that was kind of unique about my program when I graduated, well, actually when I went through it, let me rephrase that, is that um, we kind of had our own internal clinic, yeah, at, and that yeah. made a world of difference. You know, that wasn't, yeah, um, you know, putting any excessive burden on external sites, and we were able to get in there, right? Get the real cases, learn from each other, practice with each other, well, uh, with patients, excuse me, but because we we'd usually do as a pair, you know, just so they get everyone in. Um, but just having that experience was so valuable. And frankly, yeah. I don't know where I would have been without it. Yeah, no, and those are, those are wonderful, wonderful. Um, I'll offer a distinction, though, between um, pro bono clinics or even on-site clinics, whether they're pro bono or not, um, and other um, community-based settings. And, and, and that distinction is um, in the clinic setting, you have someone coming seeking your service in that patient-provider relationship. In the community-based setting, um, while you can start to appreciate and be involved in some of that patient-provider relationship, they're not there because they're patients seeking help. 
And so you get to see people living as they live um, with maybe less pretext than um, a patient stepping into a healthcare setting would be. And so I think that, um, you know, when we look at the world classification of um, world health classification of functioning, uh, and, and we look at that societal level, what are your roles? The more we can interact with people in their roles and figure out how we as PTs can help them in their roles, when we see them in their roles, I think that the better we'll be able to help them when they do come to us in the clinic. No, I think it's certainly a strong point. And Sean, I recognize that there's going to be a lot of people that uh, might want to look into this aspect, not even just regarding what we just talked about, but regarding the whole episode when it comes to um, student NCI, assessment, clinical education, the matter. Um, where can people reach out to you should they have a question on anything that was talked about today? Yeah, you know, probably the best way is just to email. Uh, so sean.gallivan at udayton.edu. So S-E-A-N dot G-A-L-L-I-V-A-N at U-D-A-Y-T-O-N dot E-D-U. And then if you forget that, you can always find me on our University of Dayton Physical Therapy website. Just Google well it. Well, to be fair, Sean, that's actually how I had to get out, reach out to you initially because I couldn't find your one initially. Okay. On there. I yeah. had to go through the website to get it. Nice. So, so if anyone's out there, you might have to do that. It can, um, it can be done. It can be done. It can be done. And I know everyone's probably also thinking that there is a lot of stuff that was talked about in terms of a lot of lists of resources and different tools and different research that was referenced. Um, right. And if you just scroll down, because if you're like me, frantic, trying to figure it all out, um, those links will be clearly posted in the show notes for you all. So you can clearly just go down and click and it'll be much easier for you to see and, you know, help have some good discussion and use as you need. So that is certainly there right. when, when and if you desire. Um, but Sean, thanks so much again for joining me today and sharing this insight on this topic. And, you know, I think I've certainly learned a lot regarding this avenue of clinical education, which to this depth, I frankly really wasn't. So I appreciate yeah. learning something and I appreciate you coming on today to share that and for all the great work you do. Oh, Brandon, my pleasure. And again, thank you so much because, uh, you know, in, in begging the question to even have this conversation, it, it really gave me the opportunity to dive deeper and learn a lot more myself. So hopefully that'll be fruitful to others and, and help move our profession along in these topics. Absolutely. I have no doubt that it will. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients, as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare, a telehealth platform, is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.